Fiend. Written by Drew Samuelson. Read by John Saris. Copyright held by Drew Samuelson. It happened only at night, when temperatures were the lowest, in the northern tier of Pennsylvania where the counties border New York State. This record I am writing, however, is not an analysis of the coldest winter weather or anything like that. I simply state it from the beginning as a way to collect some of the key facts of what I know are not accidents or coincidences. Indeed, I am likely one of the last with direct knowledge who can do so, and so am duty-bound. This surprisingly vast area is home to the Grand Canyon of the East, the Black Forest, and the darkest spot in Pennsylvania, which is free from light pollution and a favorite of stargazers. Here exists all kinds of unusual happenings and rumors which some have been talking and writing about off and on for years. While odd things happen, it is apparent most folks know enough not to discuss them openly. There is no interest in a tourist industry or anything like 15 minutes of fame, and surely no ghost walks or haunted tours fuel the local economy as they do in Gettysburg. A kind of silence seems to be the preferred way for the locals when it came to their own history. It wasn't until I moved to Potter County, Pennsylvania, that I could feel the presence. It wasn't there at first, and it wasn't there all the time, but it was there on more than one occasion when the nights grew the coldest. During the second year my wife and I lived there, which was also the second year of our marriage, the temperatures grew terribly cold. I recall skiing on Tuesday nights at a little mountain where they piped some kind of old-time white jazz over the loudspeakers. And since there were sometimes only 10 or 15 other people skiing on the entire mountain, we felt it was our very own part of the world. So common were the temperatures quite cold that we established a rule. We skied only when it was 10 degrees or more so as to avoid any possible unpleasantness, such as getting stuck on a chairlift and freezing ourselves, or breathing in too much cold air for too long for fear of pneumonia. Quite often it hovered exactly at 10 degrees Fahrenheit, so on those nights we followed our rule and skied. Every other run we skied down to a little used path to stop for a smoke, with the utter blackness of the dense and frozen forest behind us. The last time I was there, I recall taking a drag from my cigarette, and I began to feel what can best be described as a keen sense of menace, as my neck chilled considerably with what was clearly recognizable as a sensation of intense fear of something unknown. But fear of what? There were no bears lurking around at that time of year and no packs of coyotes or wolves sneaking up to snatch us off the path like little lost lambs. The fact that someone was out to get me wasn't really a consideration either, nor was I afraid of anything like ghosts. I was an ex-marine, six foot three and over 200 pounds, and still in my twenties. But there it was, a presence first perceived, yet unrecognizable in a physical form. After smoking, we skied away. I said nothing to my wife, Elise. What could I say? 
Honey, I'm all freaked out. How do you feel? So we kept skiing, and that was the last time we took our smoke breaks on that trail. The following week was brutally cold, at least 15 below zero at times, so we didn't ski on Tuesday. I had a lot of energy after work and felt like getting outside, so I decided to go for a run on the snow and ice, which is what I enjoyed doing at the time. When I stepped outside, I checked the thermometer, which showed five degrees below zero. No doubt it would drop further overnight. My habit was to run through town and make my way to the municipal park, where there were baseball fields, a soccer field, a football stadium, and a playground. A three-mile run. I was feeling especially good. No wind and the bracing air made me feel like running, so I decided to go a bit farther into the park, away from the lighted parking lot for a longer run. My breath shone clearly in the freezing cold night air. I was exhilarated as I took in the beauty and silence of it all. As I jogged to the end of the field using only the light from a half moon to guide me on the snow-blanketed grass, I approached the woods, which came down from an impressively steep mountainside which rather loomed over me, steep and dark and massive. The silence was broken by the muffled jangling of metal, and I had many thoughts at once. I thought I was alone. A dog's call. Troops on the move. Battle rattle. What the hell is it? My next reaction was outrage and surprise at the fact that I was hearing something when I knew I was alone only a moment ago. Someone had snuck up on me, and I quickly realized I had been deep in my thoughts while running and apparently hadn't heard anyone approaching. But this was all in a matter of a second or two. I knew now I needed to address it as the sound was behind me and getting closer. I visualized 20 yards back, according to what I was hearing. In addition to sounds of metal jangling faintly, like brass or aluminum rings on a backpack or stock of a weapon, there was also the sound of footfalls. Big, heavy, rhythmic thumping, and a kind of deep and raspy breathing could now be heard. Now I know someone's behind me, and I can tell he's gaining on me, even with the heavy breathing and heavy footballs. And even though my adrenaline is sky high and I'm running fast, whatever the experts call it, instinct, fight or flight, or dealing with fear, I know the matter has to be dealt with because I'm sensing that same presence I had on the path when we were skiing. He's still gaining. I can't get away. As a Marine recruit at Paris Island, I learned through training how to channel fear and aggression in a decisive action. So I do the only real thing I know how to do, and what is likely the most unexpected action I could take to my advantage. I stop my forward motion quickly, like a wide receiver running his pattern and then putting on the brakes by pumping his legs to turn up field for the reception. Only instead of turning to receive the ball, I turn back sprinting and yelling with an intense combination of anger and terror. What I see next is too unbelievable and disturbing for me, even as I write it almost 15 years later. In a moment, I see only a single, dark figure in front of me, and it's huge, reminding me of those big-ass, burnished bronze statues of servicemen walking in the field at the Korean War Memorial in Washington, D.C. Like those statues, this thing is larger than life. 
but just as dark. It's coming to me fast as I sprint toward it. I hear the muffled and labored breathing, more raspy as I come to within 20 feet, and then I hear it speaking in a low voice, really low, like a deep sound a bear or bull would make. It's spitting out the words low and guttural and raspy all at once, and with a tone of disgust. It's nothing like I've ever heard in life. Then he is in front of me, wearing a gray metal helmet, black gas mask, great coat with a dark leather belt and leggings, the uniform of what I recognize as a World War I German stormtrooper. Where the eyes should be, there is only blackness behind the lens of the gas mask. In disbelief, I suddenly glimpse a dark blade slashing at me as I dive beneath, passing on its right. I roll over and onto my feet, springing up again, certain of death. Other options don't come to mind and do not seem possible. This massive and strange thing is not alive, yet not dead. Still frantically looking around, I don't see it, only a glowing mist. I suddenly shudder involuntarily as it speaks directly behind me in the same low, raspy and muffled voice I recognize as German with its unmistakable guttural sounds. One sentence uttered with a kind of finality. Cringing as I turn, I steel myself to face it. Still I see nothing but mist and trees in the distance. I spin around looking frantically. I sense it is no longer there and start to walk toward the park's entrance. I arrived at home and let myself in the door. I had decided to say nothing to Elise as it was all too much to comprehend and too burdensome to share. Truth be told, I was too damn afraid even to speak of it, as if to utter it would bring it all back, quite literally back, like summoning it, I thought. I was sweaty and worn out looking, as I'd normally look after a run, so it must have been that Elise didn't even notice anything unusual about my appearance that might have had her saying, You look like you've seen a ghost. After showering, I recall getting into bed, kissing Elise goodnight and falling asleep almost immediately. Maybe my mind and body had had enough excitement. I'm sure my heart must have been racing at the park. My mind was working subconsciously while I slept, because in the morning I found myself fixating on two ideas. One, how to avoid another such meeting, and two, finding out what I could about the thing. In regard to item two, I determined it was still best not to tell a soul about it. But even then, I had an idea I was not the first to meet it. At work, I decided to begin by looking in the archives at the Historical Society, which I knew to be a collection of the normal artifacts one might expect to find in a small town. After work, I parked in front of the Historical Society and headed inside to the small room of local oddities and found the card catalog. There was no electronic database. Nearly an hour of perusing passed without anyone bothering me. I started looking through the stacks for anything that might lead me to information about my strange encounter. The internet was pretty new at this point, so I wasn't thinking about searching that way. Truth be told, I had a feeling the historical society held some answers. After only ten minutes of looking through a spontaneous combustion story, and another one about supposed mountain lion attacks, I came across a little paperback book that had the look of a self-published work. 
Judging from the old-style font and the light blue collar of the paperback cover, with its black binding, I guessed it was 40 or 50 years old. A closer look revealed it was published in 1961 by a Herman Willis. It was 38 years old. The book title was simple. Unexplained Deaths. As I began reading, I found Mr. Willis wasted no time getting to the point of his thesis, which was essentially the following. From 1919 until the publishing of this book, there have been eight deaths in the county, which have never been solved. While three were naturally assumed to be hunting accidents, five of the bodies were found to have been killed from a combination of blunt force trauma and multiple stab wounds. Local police investigations over the decades, including but not limited to the state police, were unable to identify the killers. The author went on to explain on page three. Since the end of the First World War, there has been a creature which has been both haunting and hunting in our forests. Its quarry is human, and its motive, revenge. It has killed those closest to me, but has escaped my attempts to destroy it. I believe it still exists today. I will not offer in these pages my theory as to how it came to be in our forests, but I believe I know the answer, and I hope to gather further necessary information. The morbid book then went on to demonstrate how these eight dead were linked by the same killer, and how they were certainly murdered, and not the result of the stray bullets of hunters or self-inflicted wounds, as in the case of those killed by gunshots. The more I read, the more questions I had, as there were clearly things the author was leaving out. I saw nothing about why the author believed revenge was the motive, or why a creature would want revenge. And, I thought, now with a mixture of fear and outrage, I saw nothing about how a freaking German stormtrooper from World War I came to be in northern Pennsylvania near a public park. I remember trying to talk some sense into myself, thinking, we're all getting ready for Y2K. I shouldn't be thinking about some crazy old German killing machine spooking me out. I put the book back on the shelf and didn't want to bring it home. As I drove six blocks to our rented home, a thought occurred to me. What if the author is still alive? Elise hadn't made it home from work, so I grabbed the phone book from the drawer in the microwave stand and looked under Willis. It was the slimmest phone book I'd ever seen prior to moving here, so it didn't take me long to find two listings under Willis. First was Willis Alfred. Next was Willis H. Without thinking about what I would say, I dialed his number, but there was neither an answer nor an answering machine. It was 4.30 p.m., and Elise sometimes doesn't make it home until after 5 p.m. I had to get some answers. No time like the present. Grabbing my car keys from the kitchen counter, I walked outside. It was brutally cold. I headed out of town traveling west on Route 6 for 10 miles before dropping it into four-wheel drive as I turned right onto a dirt road managed by the state. The drive ended up taking about 30 minutes, so I knew then I would be late for dinner. Since we no longer use cell phones as a result of terrible reception in the hinterlands, I couldn't call Elise to let her know. I scolded myself for not leaving her a note. The old guy's house, assuming it was his house and he was still alive, was pretty unremarkable. It was a square two-story house with clabbered siding painted white and black shutters on either side of the front windows, top and bottom. The roof was covered in gray shingles, commonly found throughout the country, or at least the parts of the country I'd seen. 
It wasn't beat up, but it wasn't the home of the month kind of place either. The house sat atop a long hill with a huge gravel driveway, maybe 200 yards long. It was a straight line up to the house. As I approached, I saw lights coming from the first floor windows, and when I finally came to the end of the driveway, I saw a man standing outside on the front porch, not glaring, not smiling, just looking at me. I shut off the motor and zipped up my coat before getting out. I'm Jeff Wilson, I said. Are you Mr. Willis, Mr. Herman Willis? He stared at me for a bit before finally nodding. I am, he said politely, although I'd sure like to know why you're here. I came across one of your books in the Historical Society, and I'd like to speak with you about it. Is that right, he replied. It was more of a statement than a question. He continued to size me up, and I saw that although he carried himself erect, he was pretty old, as I could now see in his face. Yes, sir, I said. Well, come on in. It's too damn cold to talk outside. Inside, the house was about as plain as could be. White walls, a thin dark blue wall-to-wall -wall rug, simple dark wood furniture that might be found in an old hunting camp with almost no decorations anywhere, except for two old black-and-white photos and brown wooden frames which hung above the wide bookcase. Through a doorway, I could see a kitchen with a little round table and three cracked golden vinyl high-back seats from the 70s. Have a seat, Mr. Willis said, pointing to an old leather chair in the living room. Let's get down to the point of your visit, he said abruptly. I suppose you're either a freelance journalist or some kind of reporter who heard something somewhere and finally had the time to follow up on it. I'd say you're between jobs and looking for a scoop on some shit like that. He looked at me in a way that was both bitterness and determination as he lowered into a wooden armchair. I wasn't sure what to say. Suddenly I thought he was going to tell me to leave. Instead, he pushed himself back into his chair and looked out the window. There was nothing to see out there, as it was dark, as one might expect, without city lights or even the lights of neighbors. We were pretty much alone, with maybe the next occupied house a half a mile away down the dirt road. He turned his head and looked at me. I saw sad but intelligent, wary gray eyes. His face was wrinkled but not haggard. His body had to be old, but he didn't move like an old man moves. No stiff or slow movements. I noticed under an unzipped blue polar fleece vest a shoulder holster. As he adjusted in his chair, I saw the butt of what I knew from personal experience could only be a 1911 A1 Colt 45, first used with great success in World War I. I looked directly at him and said, I'm neither a reporter nor a freelance journalist, Mr. Willis. I'm just interested to hear more about this creature you wrote about. Listen, Mr. Wilson, he said after a long silence. I'm an old man. I turn 99 next month. Soon after I wrote that little book you found, I headed back to Germany for the third time. I lived there for nearly 15 years with the bulk of my time trying to figure out how to kill it. For reasons I cannot say, I'll not provide you with all the details. Sometime after World War I, it came to these parts bent on revenge, not as some mass murderer, but for the thrill of the hunt. Before killing, it enjoys seeing its next victim up close. I think, to measure the man's worthiness as his quarry, it then talks briefly to its prey. Du wirst lieben, Teufelshund. 
Aberdeen weird neat, the old man said slowly. The very same words I had heard jolted me, again with a cold terror. But Mr. Willis was looking out the window again as he spoke and didn't see my reaction. The common bond, he continued, seems to be Marines from World War I. The war it fought in. You may recall your history lessons and the brutal success of the Marines when they came to Europe late in the war. The Germans quickly noticed the difference of the fighting men and gave the Marines a name which revealed their grudging respect of their adversary. Devil Hound or Devil Dog. It is the nickname Marines have used for each other ever since. He took a deep breath. As you know, Adolf Hitler saw action as an enlisted man in that war. He continued in more of a recitation than a storytelling. And as we know, that monster would go on to create many horrific events, some of which have still not been told. Hitler, many know, was involved in the occult. This is a great understatement, for he was obsessed with all things pagan. It certainly didn't end with Wagner's operas and mythological stories of gods and goddesses of old. Hitler's interest in evil descended to places few have gone, at least in modern times. Always remember, this is very old stuff, and Hitler was not the only one of his contemporaries who had an interest in this sort of darkness. Remember, Nietzsche was still very much in the minds of those who aspired to greatness at any cost to be Superman. Are you following me so far? He asked, looking intently at me. I am, I said. I knew about Nietzsche's view of what man ought to be if he threw off the chains which bound him, that is, the chains in which he had been willingly enslaved. I've already talked more than I wanted to and said less than I ought to have said by now, he continued. So let me say this as I move toward my main point. Some kind of time rift or portal was opened, which allowed this thing to come here sometime after the Great War. I don't think it was ever truly human when it first arrived. It looks like a man in its uniform and seems to have physical traits to be sure. Even the point of its weapons, movements and breathing through the gas mask. But I don't believe it is flesh and blood as we know it. I'm humbled to say I still don't know why it becomes active at night when temperatures drop. But I believe it has something to do with the conditions in which the portal was created, he said, before pausing as if to collect his thoughts. You mentioned revenge, I offered. Is it just killing Marines who fought in World War I? And if so, why? The Marine Corps made a name for itself in that war. To do so in war generally requires great effectiveness which in war means killing. Even though we were there for a relatively short time, we tipped the balance not only by choosing our targets at a distance as riflemen, but also through hand-to-hand -hand combat and the use of shotguns and bayonets in the trenches. It was especially brutal fighting, to be sure. I think one of us from Potter County killed someone very important, perhaps a high priest in one of their secret Germanic pagan orders or some more recent sect dabbling in a dark work of some still unknown kind. The point is that it all began after the three of us returned from the war, and it more or less hasn't stopped since that time. I've learned terrible facts, yet for all those years I spent overseas, I still can't explain it fully. Let's just say they weren't keeping a lot of records of their hocus-pocus.
You said it more or less hasn't stopped since then. I'm ashamed to write this record even now. I hadn't truly understood what was going on, even at that point, how obtuse I was. Well, I'm the last one of the three Marines who came from these parts and returned after the war. The other two died as old men, both widowers. You see, we learned to our great sadness that the creature wasn't after us. We had proven ourselves in battle, and we were found to be more than adequate. No, it came here to destroy those whom we loved. So I lost my young wife, and my friends lost their wives as well over time. Brothers and sisters were added to the count. I'll spare you the details. Mind you, none of us had large families to begin with, which is why we were more than happy to join up with the Marines in the first place, where we were sure to see action and adventure. We were all so young. Teenagers. The old man paused, obviously moved by his memories. But there were no tears. Remember, I published my little book in 1961. But much has happened since then. The long and the short of it is none of us ever had children or married again because we knew what would happen if we did. He tipped his head back and fixed his eyes on me as he stretched out his legs. But I've met it, I blurted. I was in the Marine Corps and it spoke to me. But you don't believe it's after me, after my wife, do you? Your wife, she's here now he said, sitting up in his chair. Do you live together now? Of course, I said. And it spoke to you in German, as I spoke to you earlier? He asked incredulously. Yes, I said with a sense of dread, as I was finally putting it together. The German. What does it mean? I asked, choking on the words. I had already guessed their meaning. You will live, devil dog, but yours will not he replied quietly. But it's never gone after anyone but us three. I felt sick as I stood up, running to the door. As I flung it open, Mr. Willis yelled at me, apparently also realizing what he hadn't known before. It is hunting right now. Go home, get your wife, and leave town. Take nothing with you, and take care not to look back when you go. I jumped off the porch and was running to the car when I heard him yell with sudden ferocity. Do precisely as I say, Mr. Wilson. The Jeep's engine turned over quickly as I pulled away, little stones popping out from under my tires, leaving a cloud of dust behind me as I sped down the driveway. I slowed briefly at the end of the driveway before entering the roadway. It was then I heard three quick gunshots, the unmistakable deep report of the Colt 45, followed by distant echoing across the valley. The old man would unholster and fire his weapon for only one reason, I thought. Panic struck me as I pulled onto the road, shifting the gears frantically and driving at manic speeds on the dirt road, fighting to keep the vehicle from sliding into the ditch. I made much better time once I hit the blacktop, hopping out at 90 miles per hour, heading east on the straight sections of Route 6. Twenty minutes later, I made it home, leaving the Jeep idling and in neutral as I vaulted up the steps and unlocked the kitchen door in virtually one motion as my heart pounded within me. Elise, I called breathlessly. We have to go right now. She walked into the kitchen, looking in my eyes, amused by some hidden joke. Seriously? She asked, a slight smile on her face as she leaned against the counter. She still wore her jacket, so she must have just arrived ahead of me. 
Yes, I said, taking her hand and leading her to the door, down the steps and to the idling jeep. Now you have to trust me when I tell you not to look back, I said as we closed the doors. I slammed it into first gear, the vehicle jumping from the curb while I quickly moved into second gear. Look back, Elise repeated. Look back at what? She asked, turning to peer over her right shoulder. With my right arm, I stopped her from turning around, guiding her head-shoulder back so she was looking straight ahead. Why all the mystery? She asked playfully. Are you kidnapping me? I said nothing as I glanced into the rearview mirror, catching a large shadow sweeping around the back side of the house as a familiar but deeper chill took hold of me. I pressed down the accelerator and the jeep lurched ahead. We drove in silence for a couple of minutes as I put as many miles between us and our house. Later, I gathered my voice. It's a long story, I can tell you later. What say we move back to civilization, I asked, trying to sound airy. Really? Elise asked, studying my face. Really, I replied. It's about time. I never liked it here, she added. As we drove south, Elise kept telling me to slow down. She was right. I was speeding. Except for our headlights and the occasional patch of three or four houses, there were no lights and no sign of the moon or stars, leaving most of the world nearly black. As I drove, some lines of verse I'd read at the start of the old man's book repeated in my mind. Somehow I had memorized the damn little ditty which had been taught to local children and recited or sung in the schoolyards and at play for generations. It was an old and sinister rhyme I regret ever reading. Beware of the coldest of nights, for such is not meant for to play. Beware of the coldest of nights, for such go not out until day. As cold as nights come so the danger... Take heed, lest you meet the masked stranger. It's crazy how cold it is tonight, Elise said, breaking the silence. I said nothing as my right foot pressed hard on the accelerator.